This is Silver Star Bible School, 1987, August 12th, Session 3. Our speaker is Brother Colin Badger. His general theme is the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the title of this class is Thy Words Are Heard, and I Am Come for Thy Words, based on Daniel 10 and the first three verses of Daniel 12. Brother Colin. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. I'd like to begin this fourth session, brothers and sisters, by asking you to cudgel your minds for a moment and thinking about this question. Where in the Old Testament would you go to find the clearest passage teaching the doctrine of resurrection at Christ's return? I say the clearest passage concerning resurrection with the saints clearly identified in conjunction with that resurrection. Where would you go in the Old Testament? I would suspect that most of us would think of Daniel chapter 12. Looking for a passage that is clear as possible, that is, where resurrection is clearly understood and the saints are involved in that resurrection, not Messiah, but the saints first and foremost. Now that's curious. Let's just look at Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And at that time, verse 1, shall Michael whose name, as we know, means like unto God, at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And even to that same time, and at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book Verse 2, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The time is very clearly fixed here. Passages such as Psalm 16, which Peter quotes in the Acts, alluding to the resurrection of Messiah, are nowhere near as easy to identify in terms of time as Daniel chapter 12. It makes a point of it. At that time, what time? When Michael stands up, when the people are in the midst of great trouble, at that time, verse 1, the people or the saints shall be delivered. They are the ones who are written in the book. So the saints are very clearly identified. Their former condition is that of sleep or death in verse 2. They shall awake, standard language for resurrection so many times in Old and New Testament. Judgment is implied in verse 2, for on the basis of that assessment, some will be given everlasting life. Some, however, will be given shame and everlasting contempt. The glorious condition of those who give, are given everlasting life is described in verse 3, language that is used in Matthew 24 and Matthew 13 in Revelation. They, shall be, they that be wise 
shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Surely, one of the clearest, if not the clearest, statements in the Old Testament concerning the doctrine of resurrection for the saints. Now, in the book of Daniel, we believe that there is a context that prepares for this very clear passage concerning resurrection. I'd like just to step back a little bit, brothers and sisters, for in Daniel chapter 8, we find a condition given in Daniel chapter 8, which describes the plight of Israel as they are persecuted. Now, we've looked at this already, I'm sure, in the last few days, where the truth and the people are cast to the ground in Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. They are cast down, or it cast down the truth to the ground, practiced, and it prospered. And, of course, there is an appeal in verse 13, how long will this take? And the time period mentioned that we discussed last evening is given. This is the casting down. And this is the time of desolation and oppression, verse 13 and 14. But then, in verse 15, in this prophecy concerning the casting down of the ground, to the ground of Israel, there is hope. Verse 15, it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which, which called and said, Gabriel, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Notice we meet our friend Gabriel again. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood. When he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. And he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. The posture is not just one of humility. It is also one of humiliation, brothers and sisters, for that same kind of expression has been used about the condition of his people and the truth, which are cast down to the ground in verse 12. The posture then of Daniel is towards the ground. He is in, as it were, a deep sleep, face to the ground. But, verse 18, he touched me and set me upright. Now watch your margin there. Hebrew, made me stand upon my standing. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For the time appointed, the end shall be. It's one thing simply to say that Daniel was prostrate on the ground. It's another thing to say specifically that he was in a kind of coma. He was in a kind of deep sleep. And that is through the touching and the words of the angel, Gabriel at that, that the prophet is brought awake and that he stands up and made me stand upon my standing. That kind of experience, personally for Daniel, that sleep condition, face to the ground, and the reawakening and the standing up again 
experienced personally by Daniel, relates in this prophecy, of course, to an answer to his question, how long? The number of days is given as 2,300. The resurrection kind of experience that Daniel has here then is in relation especially to the subjugation of the people of Israel. In Daniel chapter 7, just before it, speaking not so much of the condition of the nation of Israel, but the condition of the saints, they too are described as being cast down to the ground in a certain sense, although those exact words are not used. For we find, verse 23 of Daniel 7, that the persecuting hostility of the work of the fourth beast in the last days has this result to the saints. Verse 23 of Daniel 7. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall, notice, tread it down, and break it in pieces. Then we read in verse 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So the saints are worn out. The earth, not just Israel, is trodden down. That territory of the earth where the saints find themselves living. So the focus here is not physical Israel. The focus here is the saints and the world in which they live in the last days. Verse 27, it's obvious the saints are still the subject of attention. Verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Now, if they've been worn out, and if the world in which they have lived has been broken in pieces and trodden down, then they, the saints, have experienced the same kind of treading down, same kind of antagonism, same kind of wearing out, which Israel is described as experiencing as a nation, the Jew in his persecuted state in Daniel 8. But in both cases, either by a direct enactment in Daniel 8 or by implication that the saints finally rule in verse 27, the saints must be lifted back up again, as must Israel be lifted up again. Both, therefore, require a kind of resurrection experience, one enacted and one by implication. You see, then, by the time you come to Daniel chapter 12 and find the clearest statement concerning resurrection of the saints and the clearest indication of the time of that experience, we've been prepared for that resurrection concept. First in Daniel 7, by implication with the saints, who were worn out but will be elevated in order to rule the world. And secondly, the experience of the nation of Israel downtrodden in Daniel 8, but in the, main, in the experience of the prophet, an, a reawakening and a standing upon the standing, as the Hebrew margin suggests. Why is it then, brothers and sisters, that such clear statements about resurrection would be found in the book of Daniel at a time when the Gentiles are beginning to rule and when his people are in captivity and the saints in particular in the person of Daniel and his friends are suffering oppression. Why would that be such an appropriate time 
to set before Israel the hope of their resurrection nationally and to set before the saints and Daniel and his friends the hope of their resurrection to immortality. Let's just suspend an answer to that, but keep it in mind as we progress. Let's ask another question. Where in the Old Testament do we have the most detailed description of the process? And then the key word there is process. Where do we have the most detailed description of the process of Israel's resurrection nationally? Ezekiel 37, which we looked at last night. Now, Ezekiel is also a contemporary, at least for a short term, with Daniel. Ezekiel is receiving this resurrection or restoration vision at a time that is in the times of the Gentiles, at a time when his people have been taken captive to Babylon. Now, that's curious that the most detailed description of a resurrection process, bones coming together from the skeletal frames, the sinew being put on the bones and muscle, flesh, blood, finally breath, and then a standing. Just go back to Ezekiel 37. This too is at the same time, roughly, of Daniel's vision. And the people's condition in time and place is the same. Could we have the overhead on, please? When breath is brought into the corpses of Ezekiel 37, verse 9, we read as follows. Verse 9 of chapter 37. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain. Notice their condition. And remember that in Daniel chapter 9, excuse me, Daniel chapter 8, Israel had been described as being trodden down by her enemies and desolated. Breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Not only do we have a fairly detailed resurrection process here, but of particular interest in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of verse 10, you have this word being used in the Septuagint for standing up. It's, as you can see, part of the standard Greek word used in the New Testament for Anastasius, or resurrection. So, estemi is used, stand up. The main stem of that word used so often in the New Testament. And as we'll see, also elsewhere in the Old Testament Septuagint. We know that many times the vocabulary of the New Testament Greek seems to either borrow or at least parallel the Greek words used quite often in the Greek Septuagint, which Jesus' listeners and readers were familiar with. Keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, and go forward in Ezekiel chapter 37 to verse 24. For it's not only the nation of Israel, physical, that is a subject of concern here, 
but we're brought into the future age. When we come to verse 24, we have Messiah before us as the end result of this resurrection of the nation. Verse 24, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they also, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Now, the clearest statement of resurrection process in a national sense, but also it must be very similar in the individual sense, is in Ezekiel to the captives in Babylon. The clearest statement of resurrection concerning the saints is found in Daniel in Babylon at about the same time when nationally the nation of Israel is experiencing the same kind of Gentile oppression. Interesting that God would reveal this kind of information at this time in his revelation to his people. Another question, and this is the last. Where in the Old Testament would you turn to find the concept of resurrection linked with the period of three days? Where in the Old Testament would you find the concept of resurrection linked with the period of three days? That is the clearest link. I hear Jonah. Yes, Jonah is perhaps the choice we could make. There's one other contender. And I wouldn't say which one is necessarily better than the other. But the question is, which is the clearest? Can you read Jonah without the help of the New Testament? Or would you have read Jonah without the help of the New Testament statement from Jesus and have concluded that Jonah's experience was necessarily intended to portray a resurrection process in three days? The Master says so. Therefore, it's absolutely right in one of the most important illustrations in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, by the way, that the prophet Jonah was the only prophet sent to the Gentiles at a time of Assyrian ascendancy. There's an interesting similarity with the kind of context we find ourselves in Ezekiel and Daniel. But beside Jonah's experience, the clearest statement from the Old Testament itself would likely be from Hosea. Just turn to Hosea. There's a picture that's beginning to build up here, brothers and sisters, I believe. Hosea chapter 6. The prophet appeals to the nation. Come, verse 1, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. You see the similarity here to the language of Ezekiel 37, speaking of national Israel? Here is a clear statement linking three-day process and that of resurrection. It's really a clearer statement than that in Jonah. What's the time in the context? It's at a time when Israel has been wayward. It's on the threshold of Assyria, ready to come down and overtake the northern ten tribes. It's really on the very shadow of the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, tasted firstly through the Assyrian invasion, 
but then brought about fully when the southern kingdom is destroyed at the time of Daniel. God is giving Israel and the saints resurrection information as they get closer and closer to the beginning of the times of the Gentiles when they're going to be displaced and lose temporarily, of course, the exercises of the law. When they're going to experience what we talked about two periods back, the life of being a nomad, where they will be strangers and aliens from their homeland. It's then that the resurrection doctrine is introduced to the nation in very clear form. No doubt, in the experience of Abraham and Isaac, there were hints along the way. The work of Elijah and Elisha in their resurrection work. Yes, there were certainly indications of the resurrection there. But now it's coming forward as a revelation by God to this nation north and south as they begin to come into the times of the Gentiles and live as aliens in a strange land. That can't be a coincidence as we sample these sections from the Old Testament. The question then is, what's the appropriateness of introducing clearly the resurrection doctrine to the Old Testament at that time? Let's think carefully about that. Why is the resurrection doctrine put in front of our eyes in the New Testament? Because we are aliens and strangers. We have no continual abiding place. We are to view our surrounding circumstances as being temporal. But what's the incentive? How do you encourage brothers and sisters to hold with a very light hand the possessions of this age? How do you encourage brothers and sisters to lift up their heads from their surrounding circumstances and look to something greater? How do you do that? The Father's method is to set before us a vision. Not only the restoration of the nation of Israel, not only the revival of that people and the restoration of Jerusalem, but you give them personal incentive. You cause them to understand that there's hope for themselves. Not only will the nation, the city, and the land be resurrected, but you have the hope of personal resurrection. Something to hope for, something to pray about. Something that will give you the incentive to lift up your eyes and look heavenward. For it's a heavenly hope. It's the hope that you will be energized by spirit. Thus showing that the temporal things around you are transient. That's how you encourage brothers and sisters. To walk the line that they are to walk. To give them the encouragement they need in trial and tribulation. You lift up their eyes to the heavenly hope. And it's personal as well as the national hope for the peace of Jerusalem. Now that brings us to Daniel chapter 10. The focus of our comments. But it has to be seen in context. Not only of the prophecy of Daniel, before what is said in Daniel 10, through what we saw in 7 and 8, but Daniel chapter 10 has to be seen also as throwing out an important link to those first three verses in Daniel chapter 12. And we have to see the personal nature of this hope that Daniel not only sees now, he experiences as he did in chapter 8 when the resurrection and the hope of the nation is presented to him. 
So we come into Daniel chapter 10. And once again in verse 2, like we saw last day in Daniel 9, Daniel's attitude prepares his receptiveness and pleases, no doubt, the Father to give him an answer. For he tells us personally in verse 2 that in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. It's easy in our readings to gloss over that verse and not give it much thought. Have you ever mourned for three full weeks? Not necessarily here now for the loss of a loved one. That might be a little easier to identify with. But have you ever mourned for the ecclesia or for spiritual matters and concerns for three full weeks? I know I haven't. That's the difference between Daniel and ourselves, perhaps, in part. Here was a man who agonized over spiritual matters. In Daniel chapter 9, he agonized with sackcloth and ashes just to know by books his understanding of the 70 years prophecy in Jeremiah. And he prayed about it. And he agonized to know. And here he's in the same posture again in his prayer. For he tells us in verse 3 that he fasts. For he eats no pleasant bread. He has no flesh, no wine. Neither does he anoint himself until the three weeks are over. But then in verse 4, In the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, alone and secluded, this time away from his home, he receives a vision. Verse 5, And he lifts up his eyes and he looks. And what does he see? He sees a certain man. Margin, one man, or as it can be translated, the man or a man of one. And this man is clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold. His body also was like the burl, and his face is the appearance of lightning. And his eyes as lamps of fire, his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass. And the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now bring together those two thoughts, one in verse 5 and one in verse 6. Here was one man, or a man of one, and yet when he speaks, he has the voice of a multitude. So in one man, there is a multitudinous voice, a multitudinous representation. Now, Brother Stephen has this chapter also, and he has to expand on this, I'm sure, in order to... um, fulfill his obligations, I guess we could say, for the exposition of this chapter. And I don't want to tread on this exposition of the one man and its links with with other passages in the New Testament, except for our purposes, we're looking at this as it relates to prayer and to the hope of prayer and the object of prayer. Here we have also a preparation for Daniel chapter 12. Without any real in-depth study, Most brothers and sisters, I'm sure, would look at verse 5 and 6 and say, well, it reminds them of the picture of an angel or it reminds them of some picture of a glorified individual. It's a picture of God manifestation. One man is stressed at first, but then the voice of a multitude. doesn't take a lot of careful searching for links elsewhere in this prophecy or out of this prophecy in Old Testament or New to realize that this is the language of God manifestation. Ezekiel received a vision in the first few chapters of his prophecy and some of the light colors, the colors used to describe light in Ezekiel's 1 and 2, are very similar to this. 
and the glorified figures related to the cherubim in Ezekiel 1 and 2, in the wheel vision, are also related to this. For now, letting Stephen be able to handle that the way he wishes, let's just notice that Daniel sees a vision of God manifestation in the person of a man, yet who is also associated with a multitude when he speaks. Now we're going to continue and leave the exposition of that. For our purposes, we now look at verse 7 and on. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. The prophet now is privileged to experience this alone. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption. Now notice now how these terms are even more detailed than that of the experience of the prophet's sleep in Daniel 8 that we just looked at. It uses the word corruption. He has no strength. Funny to describe someone as having corruption while he's still alive, even though he might feel weak. You wouldn't normally say that because a person feels he has no strength that he feels there's corruption in his body. Yet he does. And in verse 9, Yet heard I the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, we come back to Daniel 8 experience, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. So there's Daniel in a state of kind of a kind of death, corruption, no strength, a deep sleep. Remember, it's sleep that's described in Daniel 12, from which the saints come out. They're described in the first three verses of Daniel 12 as awaking out of sleep. Second stage, verse 10, Behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. Notice the process. It's a kind of resurrection experience, but it's in process through stages. Remember what we saw in Ezekiel 37 just a few moments ago and what we saw last night? Stages in the resurrection. He touched me set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And now he's told an encouraging thing. In response to his prayer, the angel says, he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee. Stand upright. Hebrew in the margin. Stand upon thy standing. Just like we saw in Daniel 8. Stress on the fact that he's to stand. I speak unto thee and stand upon thy standing. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. The Septuagint word for stood there is anesten. It's not the word for Anastasius, but it's related. Interestingly enough, we go on a little further. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Once again, let's think of the practical import of that. Daniel, like all of us, needed encouragement. He needed the assurance that his prayers were heard. So did the friends. So did the nation of Israel. 
why would they need, especially at this time, encouragement concerning the hearing of their prayers? Well, without having lived in those days prior to the 70-year captivity, it's hard to remember. Here was a person in Daniel and the nation who was with him who had previously experienced the exercise of the laws of Moses. They were used to seeing animals sacrificed on the altar. That was a central form of worship. They were used to seeing or knowing of the altar of burnt incense. But, question, does God hear prayer while we're in Babylon? Or do we have to still be in the land? Remember Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech? The assurance to all of Israel that God is not worshipped by a temple made with hands, pure and simple. God is wherever his people are. God wishes to dwell not just in a temple made with hands. He wishes to dwell with flesh. For the word was made flesh. And he wishes to dwell and to live and to work and to change you and I and make us into a new creation. That's a fundamental understanding, brothers and sisters, of why brothers and sisters in this predicament need to know that prayers are heard and answered. Did they have to be in the temple? No. Did they have to be in the land of Israel? No. Did they have to at least be in Jerusalem for prayers to be heard? No. Prayers are heard even in Babylon, to the righteous, that is. That's a source of encouragement. Wherever we are, brothers and sisters, whether we are walking on so-called holy ground or not, wherever we are, his people are met with the presence of God and his overshadowing care. Whether we're at the bus stop, whether we're at home, wherever we are, there's that positive assurance. And it was something that perhaps you and I take for granted and understand well, but it was a new experience for people in exile from a place that was, of course, away from the central forms and symbols of worship. Thy prayers, Daniel, were heard, and I am come for thy words. Then, we are told that the angel was detained, of course, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, ah, Michael, the one who's introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 12, that clear passage to do with resurrection. Michael, whose name means like unto God, one of the chief princes came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, verse 14, I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days? For yet the vision is for many days. Daniel, however, is, as we understand it, standing, but he is not really standing with a lot of strength. For we left Daniel, before these words were first spoken by the angel, standing in verse 11 and trembling. Now there's another process. The third point. Verse 15, when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground. He's down again, as it were, or looking down. And I became dumb. And behold, one like, now notice, the similitude of the sons of men, the plural picture. One like the similitude of the sons of men. 
Remember that certain man who was one man, yet when he spake, his voice was like the multitude? One like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. And, or for, how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For, as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath in me. Notice, no breath. The condition of the dispersed nation in the valley of dry bones. One who has no breath is as though he was dead. So that picture of the corpse is once again reinforced in the condition of Daniel as he experiences it. Verse 18. Then, third stage, then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me, final stage, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened, and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. At least three main stages here, brothers and sisters. He experiences a death state. He is brought partly upright, although still trembling and lacking any strength and still without proper breath. And then finally, the stage in verse 19, Daniel experiences strength. What a marvelous picture. And in verse 21, almost the last word mentioned is the word Michael, one like God. Who was like God in the vision? Verse 5 and 6, right? That certain man looked like God. Who was the one that comes in verse 13 as part of the vision experience? Lo, one like God, Michael, one of the chief princes, comes to help me. Who is it then that strengthens and brings Daniel through in this last stage? Michael does. One like God. And it's in the days of Michael, Daniel chapter 12, one like God, that the vision, the clearest vision in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the saints is given. Is that just coincidence? That in the resurrection experience which Daniel has, Using even words, as we can see here, mentioned already before in the standing up of Daniel, that are used elsewhere in the New Testament for resurrection in part, part of the stem, as well as the whole world itself. All brought to our focus as we come from New Testament and look back here in the old with a better vision than what perhaps even his contemporaries had. Here, though, in the vision of one who is like God, a vision of God manifestation. Daniel, besides that man, goes through a step-by-step process from being in a corruptible, sleeping condition to where finally, from a trembling standing position, he's upright and he's strengthened. Here's Daniel. And here's one who is called that certain man or that one man who, when he speaks, speaks like the voice of a multitude. And this voice of a multitude is heard in the face of Daniel. Here is one who is glorified and speaks for a multitude. 
here is one who experiences a strengthening process through a resurrection as he watches and sees this great glorious vision in front of him. And then the final step brought for Daniel is by one who's called Michael, one like unto God, who faces the prophet Daniel, touches him and strengthens him in the last stage of verse 19. See how you cannot separate Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 10, from Daniel chapter 12. Once again, let's now see how this relates to the purpose of helping Daniel in prayer and helping to encourage both himself and the fellow saints he had around him to endure the trials of their affliction. Let's go to that passage in the New Testament that best shows the resurrection and uses in the Greek the word anastasis. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the clearest passage in the New Testament concerning resurrection. And just look at the terms of reference as they parallel the terms of reference in Daniel 10. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. We have here, in connection with resurrection, the mention of the condition being corruption, to start with, in verse 42. Do you remember that in Daniel 10? That Daniel was described as though he had corruption? Then there's a raising, verse 42, and that's the word anastasis. The word used in part in the Valley of Dry Bones and in part also in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel 8, both together. Then, of course, as we proceed through, there's mention of the word breath. For in verse 45, the last state is described as quickening spirit or quickening breath. Then we're told in verse 49 that the ultimate result will be that we bear the image of of the heavenly. What did Daniel have put in front of him? The picture of a certain man and a glorified expression of God's manifestation. Who came to do the final touch? Michael, one like unto God. We shall bear the image of the heavenly. Then, what is the final encouragement? Well, you see in verse 57, the prayer... 1 Corinthians 15 ends with a prayer. The two are not disassociated. First, we're given the picture of resurrection for most of that chapter. And then Paul breaks out into a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Verse 57. But thanks be to God. It's an expression of prayer and worship. Thanks be to God who giveth us, not just me, but us, the victory. Through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who touched Daniel and gave him the strength? Michael did. One like God. How do we get the victory? Through one who is like God. Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, here's the conclusion of the matter. My beloved brethren, here is the practical reason for the doctrine of resurrection being explained to us. Here's the effect it should have on the minds and hearts of Christadelphians. 
Therefore, here's what follows. If we have a resurrection hope, if death will be overcome, if God will give us the victory through one who is like Michael, one like unto God, therefore, brothers and sisters, he says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do you know that? How do you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord? Because of what's just been said. Because of the hope of resurrection. That's why your labor is not in vain. If your energies are finally expended in the master's service, if you're thrown into the lion's den, as it were, if you're thrown into the fiery furnace, if you, like Job, lose some of your family and your home, if your flesh is given to disease and sickness and to problems, if, like the Apostle Paul, you're buffeted for Christ's sake, if you are, how do you know that your labor is not in vain? Because, verse 57, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What victory? The hope of resurrection. Why did Daniel need to know that? Why did his friends need to know that? What was the incentive to them at that time and at that place, brothers and sisters? Because these were men who were thrown into lions. These were men who faced dire persecution and problems. They needed to have that vision before them. And Daniel is given that vision after he has prayed. So let's get that sequence. Daniel prays and mourns for three weeks. Daniel receives an answer to his prayer. What's the answer? He sees a glorified vision of God manifestation in a whole body of people, as it were, but in the person of a kind of one man. That's the ultimate result. And then Daniel, in the face of that vision, goes through stages of resurrection until he too is standing up and he too has strength. And one like unto God has given him that resurrection experience. Daniel prayed. Daniel got an answer. He saw it first as the end result. He experienced it personally through his own self. Daniel is given the hope of resurrection. Not just as a vision in front of him, although that was important as the end result. Daniel experiences it. What a gracious God. What a God of understanding the frailties and the forgetfulness of human experience. That Daniel, on behalf of all his faithful and on behalf of you and I, portrays for us the man who is given the reward at the end of the race for faithful service. And the Apostle Paul, in detailing the greatest chapter in the New Testament on the process of Anastasius and resurrection, ends by a prayer, assures us that we have victory, and then in verse 58, tells us what the practical import is. Therefore, like Daniel and his friends, there's now reason to be steadfast. Now there's an incentive to be unmovable. Now we have an encouragement to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Is that how the resurrection doctrine affects you and I? Is it just a principle? 
just something in the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith that we read and say yes to? Just something we assent to prior to baptism? Does it have that effect on you and I? That's the point. Do we pray for it? And by praying for it, keep the vision fresh and crisp in our mind, in our heart? Do we picture it as something real that Daniel needed to experience and see as being real? And when it comes to deciding whether or not we should support the Bible class, when we wonder whether we should help serve on the arranging board, which we know will put more demands on our time, when we see that the CYC is in need of help, when we see the brethren are crying out for assistance in committee work, in the work of the Lord, when we see a magazine that might need assistance in various ways by support writers or in many other ways, when we see there's an appeal to the mission field, do we, brothers and sisters, say yes and accept those responsibilities personally by the incentive of the doctrine of resurrection? May it be, brothers and sisters, that we, like Paul in verse 57, can pray as follows. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.